generations from now when they just call me Yaya and nobody knows the water warrior, they'll know that I love them enough to do this hard work and sacrifice to ensure that they all have a right to water, which is life. I'm Damon. I'm Daniel. And welcome to Climate Change Makers, presented by Elevate, who for over 20 years have worked to create a just and equitable world in which everyone has clean and affordable heat, power, and water in their homes and communities, no matter who they are or where they live. We are smack dab in the midst of our second season talking with some of this land's most impactful environmental justice visionaries and workers about what ideas guide their work, which strategies have been effective, and what advice they have for Elevate as the organization works to put people and the planet first in the fight to build equity through climate action. This episode, we had on the wonderful Monica Lewis-Patrick. Monica is an educator, entrepreneur, and human rights activist and advocate. Along with the four other founders of We the People Detroit, she, with the leadership of volunteers and community experts, placed herself and We the People at the forefront of the water justice struggle in Michigan and across the Great Lakes. Lewis Patrick is known throughout the environmental justice community as the water warrior and is actively engaged in the struggle for access to safe, affordable water for all under-resourced communities. It was a true honor, pleasure, and joy to talk to Monica. We started off really uh, deep in that Detroit to Chicago connection, really grounded us in how the work that's happening in Detroit, not only around water access and water struggles, but in community at large, is a part of this larger lineage grounded in rematriation, Black and Indigenous women creating community. In a really impactful way, she shares lessons from her own mother, a combat veteran, who says very clearly and in no uncertain terms that the tactics, measures, and processes of the oppressive systems we are resisting are war-based and that this nation in many ways is at war with its own people and that we have to take that seriously and do the work to then protect our communities and build healthier connections between humanity. We start this conversation with Monica with the same two-part question that we start every episode of Climate Change Makers. In this time, however you define time, How is the world treating her, and how is she treating the world? Well, I would have to answer that with a a quote from Bracelet Boggs, who told us that we needed to know what time it was on the clock of the world. And so uh, I think right now what is happening is that uh, through the lens of belovedness, I'm seeing my community continue to prioritize the needs of others around housing, around food, around water, and land justice. And so those are the things that are sort of happening on my clock uh, in that this time in the world. You've opened us up right where we need to be. This feels like home a little bit. So again, gratitude for taking the time to talk with us. And really from that answer, want to open up just naming the space that you're in. There's this like spiritual, deep Southern cousin type of sibling relationship between Chicago and Detroit in general, whether we're talking about house music, footworking, but ball rolling, ball, all of that, right? But, but yeah, the stepping, yeah, y'all, y'all, our stepping cousins, yeah. all of that, step cousins, <laughs> yes, step cousins, yeah. perfect. <laughs> um, but definitely, you know, on on the the legacy of uh, resistance, liberation, uh, world making, revolution building, there there is a, a deep like cosmic connection between Chicago and Detroit, and our show feels like we are a product of that. So I want to also shout out our mentor Keisha Scott, who is uh, a Detroitian, 
uh, other mentor, movement mother, and, fr- and lover and friend of the show, Barbara Ransby, uh, who got the Detroit roots. But you went right yeah. to it. You went right to like our crown jewel of, you know, we named ourselves as in the Bogsian tradition. And so Grace Lee and Jimmy mean so much to us. So from that pouring in, talk a little bit about the space of Detroit that legacy, whether you trace it to the bogs or through other branches of the tree, and how that really informs how you understand your work and how you show up to the world. Yeah, thank you so much for the question, Damien and Daniel. I just think for us, uh, we the people of Detroit, our work is really rooted in what we consider to be uh, the Black matriarch, uh, coming out of that understanding that Black women are the mothers of all civilizations, but also having made tremendous sacrifices uh, for humanity to continue to survive and thrive. And so it's out of that lens and out of the teachings of the great Dr. Gloria House, who was just a literary genius uh, and had been a critical part of uh, actually helping uh, formulate SNCC and going into the deep South to create freedom schools. And it's out of the teachings of the amazing uh, Dr. Reverend Joanne Watson, who as a city council person here was a major part of of the architecture that created a water affordability policy in 2005 that was based on the United Nations principles for the human rights of water. You've got some of the most brilliant innovation coming out of the city. And then as Brother Damon said, you've got all of this genius that's deeply connected all across the Great Lakes and all up and down the Southern Corridor and all across the nation, if you will. And so, as we often say here in Detroit, as goes Detroit, so goes Michigan, so goes the nation. And so we've seen this play out over and over again in terms of racial inequities and disparities. Uh, The things that are playing out right now in terms of water are deeply connected to the fact that in the 70s, you saw an ushering in of Black leadership, not only in Detroit, but in Chicago and in Baltimore and many of these urban cores that are now seeing themselves divested from over the last 40 years and struggling with all of these, not only um, environmental harms and injustices, but economic and structural violence that's playing out in a very real way. I want to stay on the geographic for a second, because you've drawn this connection of a Great Lakes region. And I think the more and more that we talk to people who do environmental justice work, there's this understanding that the framework of a state is kind of not useful for understanding this work. uh, And that the, the region and the interconnectedness across these lakes, these remarkable lakes, is so important. With the obsolescence of that state border for for understanding this, how did water become at the center of uh, at least this stage of your movement work? Because you've been involved in so many different ways. Well, for us, it really started um, in 2009 as a collective. Uh, uh, the five of us were just uh, mothers and grandmothers and aunts that were extremely concerned about the privatization of public education. We were concerned about mural control and actually the thwarting of parental input in terms of how our children were being educated. And of course, Cecily McClellan, who is a brilliant um, union organizer, longtime labor leader here in the city of Detroit, through the health department, inside of the water department, through her genius of leveraging all of the services for the residents of Detroit and creating a wraparound program that allowed Detroiters to keep their water on. Uh, allowed many of them to be able to avoid having liens put on their homes. Just in one year alone, she single-handedly saved 800 homeowners from actually having a water debt applied to a lien 
when many of them did not owe property taxes, but they did have water liens because they could not afford the ever-increasing cost of water. Water in Detroit has gone up 438% over the last two decades. Detroit at one point had 2 million residents. What we have right now is about 725,000 residents, roughly, and that number is shrinking. And then out of that 725,000, 40% of those residents live in abject poverty. 60% of those households are headed up by single women with anywhere from two to four children, not only taking care of those children, but usually caring for another family member that's elderly or sick. And then you have on top of that, 70% of the people that work in the city of Detroit don't live in the city of Detroit. So they are not fully participating in the tax base that sustains the city. And so we have to constantly remind folks that they hear this narrative of comeback in downtown Detroit. It's a master narrative that's been created to manufacture the belief that somehow Detroit is doing well. You look at the demographics of the city, not just downtown, but you've got to look at in the neighborhoods. We are getting sicker. We are dying. Before COVID, things like hepatitis A. In 2016, you had a journal article basically dictating that we sit in southeastern Michigan in the largest hepatitis A outbreak in American history. So we were in an epidemic prior to a pandemic. And these are the things that our work has really had to center around is not only lifting from a citizen science lens, the data and the research to substantiate these harms, but we're also having to be the persons putting together legislative templates to be able to offer to our legislators things that are equitable and just in their framing, being able to lift up and connect that work to the youth work that is happening. So we believe it's not just one thing, it's everything that's got to be connected. But it was education that started our work, connecting that to water, justice, uh, policy, and civil rights, because we know that uh, what we're seeing play out is really austerity. You've got 37 states that have some form of this austerity measure that was funded by the American Legislative Exchange Council and uh, the Koch brothers. So when we don't acknowledge and connect those dots and we just leave it as a they or them, then it leads people to believe we're just conspiracy theorists. But when we can connect the dots to board members and budgets and where dollars are going, that's a trail that people can follow. And that's information that's powerful. Mm. I, I think drawing austerity into this conversation is a key because as you said, as Detroit goes, the rest of the country goes. How have you seen austerity deployed and how do you understand it in the context of environmental work and, and, and water? Well, to answer the question first about austerity, for us, austerity plays out in this way. It's the setting aside of the democratic process. It is actually carving up union contracts. It is removing elected officials. It is actually making financial decisions that should be in the public sphere taking that and making decisions behind closed doors. And this is what we saw play out not only in Detroit, but all across Michigan and many other uh, states. When you look at how union contracts were carved up in Wisconsin, those things will hurt families and communities for generations to come. These are instruments of power that are being used and levied against working families and communities to be able to take public assets, to be able to take public contracts and dollars and then be able to redirect them into private hands. It wasn't just about righting the financial wrongs in the city of Detroit. It was really an opportunity to manufacture a narrative of failed Black leadership in Detroit and then use the divestment from cities like Detroit all over Michigan 
that had played out over the last 40 years as a way to justify then going into those cities and doing things like 80% of the bankruptcy in the city of Detroit was on the backs of pensioners. Now, people would lead you to believe that somehow Dan Gilbert saved Detroit. Well, that's not what happened. What they did is they leveraged the economic downturns all across the nation. If you look at Dan Gilbert's history, much of what he has done, he's used predatory lending practices to build his business. And now what he's doing is going back into those same communities like Cleveland and Detroit and trying to sanitize his reputation by giving a few million dollars to school activities when he actually stole buildings. You look at Detroit alone, he was able to get over $618 million out of the school aid fund for the city of Detroit's children to help him clean up a Superfund site. Then he turns around and gives Detroit a couple of million dollars to act as though somehow he's the white savior. So when you have that kind of leveraging power and then all of the money that is being taxed to actually fund this development is being levied across the residents, and then you sit in a community where over 100,000 homeowners have lost their homes since 2009 in the city of Detroit, illegally and unconstitutionally, because somehow, even under democratic rule, and we have to talk about this too, we have seen at the local level the racist implementation of these kinds of policies, and they have played out under people that look just like me. When you look at Michigan, many of the people that served as emergency managers, which were these people that mismanaged the public assets for the purpose of private interests, were Black men that professed to be Democrats. You look at right now, we have a police officer heading up the water department for the city of Detroit, which wait, provides wait, 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 40%. Wait, wait, wait. You heard wait, what wait, I said. wait. I got it. I got it. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yes, we got to run it back. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. You said, what is happening? You said. You have a policeman, a retired policeman by the name of Gary Brown, who has no expertise whatsoever in water systems management, water quality. He got the position because he did certain things that corporate interests wanted him to do when he served on city council. Part of his role on city council was to help give away Detroit's public lighting department. We're paying them to take from us our infrastructure, everything from the wires and, and the pole in the ground to the vehicles and all of the service equipment. Same thing played out in terms of water. We were forced to build this infrastructure out that then built out the suburbs, which then in turn has the ability to get their water at a fixed cost at a wholesale rate whereas Detroiters are forced to pay retail, and everybody's all right with that, even during a global pandemic. Yeah, and, and I want to get to the specific violences of water shutoffs in a pandemic, but I, I want to just make sure I understand something you said. The infrastructure that provides water to the suburbs surrounding Detroit, where that divestment within the city has built these communities along um, socioeconomic and racial lines, the water infrastructure for those suburbs comes from the city, right? So it's the city water supply, it's the city infrastructure that feeds that. But you're saying th those suburbs are able to get that water at a wholesale rate, whereas the people who that infrastructure uh, is being supported by with their tax dollars have to pay for it at a retail rate, correct? That's exactly correct. Yikes. Mm. But, but you're laying this out so brilliantly because not only are we just talking about neoliberalism as just like a dynamic I think we're really getting into the mechanics of it and the, the humanity of it, because I think we actually inappropriately flatten how neoliberalism is operating as if it's just folks profit seeking, right? Like as if there's just 
big air quote rational actors agents just looking for a buck but what you're describing is not only this fleecing of public communities and also marginalized people you also are 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 naming this other force of neoliberalism and austerity is that the disciplining of black liberatory legacy right and so detroit particularly as you named you know the the public representation of that that lineage from Coleman Young to Kwame th- there was this forever existing backlash of we need to discipline and put basically that that thrust back into its place and so not only is it i'm going to profit off the water it is i'm going to take the control from the community also have these anti-democratic like colonial forces such as Alec who's you know responsible for the stand your ground law uh also responsible for a lot of the like early horrible immigration laws in Arizona um pretty much like evil <laughs> like you know I don't use that word a lot but like if we want to imagine evil Alec gets pretty close to it and also these advisory councils that basically serve as what we imagine a city council to be but is a completely anti-democratic bank corporate led entity that then controls public resources and what the way you just describe it it is not just to get rich it is a slap on the wrist or a a punishing of community which i think we need to understand it as like an explicit violence you know almost in alignment with like war based siege tactics to diminish a population in order to dominate politically not just for profit margins I feel like a lot of times folks like you that have to know the Xs and Os so well you have to catch everything that they're doing, every policy, we then are forced to use use their vocabulary and their frameworks in order to have the discourse and the dialogue. So I want to take a step back and allow us to like kind of clean the slate and what is like the tongue and the language and the vocabulary with which we should be focusing and appropriately talking about water access particularly in Detroit. There's an amazing activist by the name of Charity Hicks. If your audience gets a chance, please Google Charity Hicks. Part of her work was really teaching Detroiters to understand how deeply connected we were to this global struggle. And one of the things that she had demonstrated is that water actually was a God-driven moral right. Uh, We didn't have to ask permission. Uh, that our bodies uh, dictate that we must have access to water, that our minds and everything about how we function cannot move or exists without this critical life-sustaining source. But it was when we began to collaborate, not only with Charity's teachings, but that of indigenous women, not only from First Nation, but from African culture, really talking about this unifying ability to cross cultures and divides and political ideology and religion. And at its essence, it was life-sustaining. I think it was through their eyes that we were empowered to see ourselves not as victims, but as transformers and innovators in this moment. And we weren't asking permission to turn our water on or to make it affordable. Uh, We weren't asking uh, permission to not put us out of our homes and to give us a rate that's affordable and not to use these very violent and aggressive tactics of extraction uh, on the residents of Detroit. But in the meantime, too, we did some things to use self-determination and cooperative work to actually be a part of saving ourselves. And so some of that work uh, really was rooted in a conversation I had with my mother in 2014, where we were seeing on average about 40 to 50,000 homes shut off from water annually. She's a retired 
veteran from the U.S. military, not so much out of patriotism, but caring for children after my father came back from Vietnam and could not function and abandoned the home and became addicted to heroin. So just another tragedy of, you know, uh, U.S. violence on its own own citizens. But out of that, my mother, uh, who's still at 76 years old, can be called up by her government because her expertise are putting up a surgical unit in a war zone. And she doesn't play a lot. Very serious lady, only about five, two, maybe 100 pounds soaking wet. But she's a no nonsense sister. And as a master sergeant, she told me in no uncertain terms, she said, the shutting off of water is an act of war. And then she quoted the Geneva Convention and said, I hope that what you understand is that at this point, you have stepped into what is known as a water war. Because if the U.S. government has decided that it is going to systematically shut off its own residents domestically from water, uh, then we are at war. And because of the seriousness of this person and a person that I know loves me more than life itself, I took her message with the seriousness of her tone. And I decided at that point that I would live the rest of my life dedicated along with other amazing women and global leaders to solve what is a solvable problem. It's through the lens of the Black matriarch that we are building a beloved community, not asking permission, but moving in the direction of moving from trauma into transformation. And that's where our children are taking us. My next question is, actually pretty simple, but it feels big in my head. So I'm trying to, <laughs> I don't want to overdo it, but I really am interested more in the connection, solidarity, intersection with indigeneity. Um, tell us a little bit more about the connection between your work and the indigenous struggles around water that are happening throughout the land and how are they in conversation with each other? How are they inspiring each other? What, what, are, what are the mutual learnings? What we have found from Indigenous women is that there's a, a, a deep language that they have shared with us around how to talk about water and how to begin to frame water uh, from the lens of being a relative. You've got to remember, I came into this work from a position of trauma, trying to figure out in my community where the levers were to get information when an elder would say, you know, I, I just don't know how to meet this bill. Or now that we're under emergency management and nobody has to answer to the public, I don't know what department to call to get this basic service. These were the ways that we were just caring for each other in our community. But it was when we began to hear the story that Charity Hicks had been arrested for just telling her neighbors that they were in imminent danger of having their water shut off. The water department was coming and it was going to shut off the entire block of water. And some of those people owed a water bill and some did not. But because there had been a major contract that had been led out to a uh, demolition company that was outside of the city of Detroit, this became a cash cow for that company to be able to then get into the city of Detroit and take advantage of what was happening uh, politically. I'm and sorry, so charity. Just so you're saying, just to clarify, that the the cutoff was for people who were and were not in good standing with their bill alike. That 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 was a common experience, even for folks who didn't owe on their bill. Oh yeah, that was part of our work. Part of what we, the people of Detroit, was able to demonstrate is that people were being cut off whether they owed a bill or not. 
we actually have a publication that came out in the Oxford Journal of Public Health that pointed out the fact that just the fear that your water may be shut off was causing people to flee from their homes. And women were walking away from homes that had been in their families for two, three, four generations, not because they didn't need the home. But in Michigan, there is a policy that says that if you don't have running water for 72 hours, you're in imminent danger of having your children taken. The only place where this policy has been implemented has been the city of Detroit. So the blight didn't occur because people got up and stopped going to work. The blight occurred because of the overwhelming burden of water debt and then the fear of having your children taken. Over 80% of the population is people of color, Black folks. And then 60% of the households are headed up by single women with two to four children then guess what they're doing? They're going from their house where they can't afford the water anymore to then her sister's house who already has two children. And then they stay there for a couple of months. And then guess what? The bill increases so high at your sister's house, she can't afford to stay anymore. Water debt and water rates are being weaponized against the community to actually gentrify the city. I just want to say, it's been really hard to not curse. Oh, I curse all the time, baby. I do I too. Pray. I do too. But I, I just, just, just. But the then I pray about it. <laughs> atrociousness and just, and just how shocking it is. I'm that notion of the collective shutoff is just so shocking and stark for me uh, because it's this contradiction around collectivism and individuality that the system perpetuates. Of you know professing individual responsibility and and singular choice actor agent is the name of the game. But it just time and time again, when it comes to harm and violence and destruction, there's no hesitancy to collectivize that. And so to, to collectively shut off a community, you know, it just spits in the face of the ideology they use to justify so much of their own violence. That is just like overwhelming to, to, to hear and to understand and to imagine and learn from you the impacts of that perverse relationship to the individual and the collective. But but the thing that if we don't include the history and give context to how we got here, we also miss an opportunity too. And then when you hear the stories that connect us, I mean, from here to Chicago, I can help you connect the dots. What happened in Detroit was about stealing the water infrastructure from a Black city Because what they know is that we sit on one fifth of the world's fresh water. This was about wealthy actors being able to decide now we want to come back to Detroit because we know that the importance of where it sits geographically is a goldmine. You have to put into the context also that many of the banks that benefited from the bankruptcy in Detroit are the very banks that are buying up the aquifers around the globe. So is it too far-fetched for me to believe that the very governor that poisoned Flint would not participate in a corrupt act of helping uh, orchestrate a contrived bankruptcy to sell Detroit's water and sewage department without it going to a vote of the residents? No, it's not that far-fetched. No, it's not not (laughs) far-fetched. You have clipped the wings of a system that was successfully operating. And I remind folks all the time, when black and brown and, and white folks were running the city of Detroit's water system, we never poisoned anyone. It was only under austerity that people got poisoned, got sick and died. So when you put those pieces together, there's something about the public good staying in the public eye. There are corporate actors. There are banks and financial actors. We have to name them. We have to connect them. 
we also have to begin to talk and lift each other's story. So I don't just talk about Detroit. I lift up what's happening in Chicago, what's happening in Toledo, what's happening all across the nation, because these things are not happening in isolation. They're deeply connected. Mm. This opening up of the understanding of the importance of the Great Lakes, we started off talking about this regionality and the, the stat you gave, which is what I've heard before, is that one-fifth of the world's freshwater supply is right here. And so why would we not assume that this is a you know an anticipated and in some ways real scarcity that is being consolidated and privatized? In talking about water, it's not just the water that comes out of our taps. We're also seeing as the impacts of climate change are hitting different places that water is both this necessity and when mismanaged and not taken seriously can be this destructive force. How has that shaped uh, your understanding, how you talk about water, not just the urgency of it, but you know some of this language or understanding of it as a force both for life and also that we need to be taken seriously um, for our own ability to keep functioning in this land? The, the thing we've got to make sure the audience knows is that the water department uh, is underreporting on several fronts. Uh, one is that we've had major flooding in the city of Detroit since 2014. So as we've seen more privatization and regionalization of our water department, we've seen less effective leadership and less investment and more of these malfunctions of the system. When we had hundreds and thousands of pensioners forced into early retirement out of that leadership role in the water department and other parts of government that have the expertise of understanding that system, we lost a significant amount of information and intelligence. That was forced out by this austerity that I continue to mention. We have become uh, the experts in our own lived experience. One of the things that Joanne Watson used to say to us all the time, she said, y'all better deputize yourselves because nobody's coming to save you. Uh, We really embrace that as a mantra. It's through our own intelligence, our cooperative work, uh, the ability to be self-determined, Uh, the ability to understand that the fight is not just for us in this present day existence, but as our indigenous family talks about, we're really building that seven, eight, nine, 10 generation kind of uh, gifting of a community that our children will inherit and that they can at least know that we were doing a better job than we had done before. I really want to be the person that my mother prays for and is proud of. I want to be the person that my children and my grandchildren, generations from now, when they just call me Yaya and nobody knows the water warrior, they'll know that I love them enough to do this hard work and sacrifice to ensure that they all have a right to water, which is life. We'll leave with the question that we're asking everyone in this Climate Change Maker series. You know, what do you want an organization like Elevate? to know and how should they be shifting their work to better serve the needs of this very present and also seven, eight, nine generation fight? I think Elevation continue to do what the, I've seen them do is really adding more frontline persons into leadership roles and decision-making, uh, more persons of color, more women of color. Uh, and definitely, I believe they're on that path. I think that you can never go wrong with centering those closest to the issue. And so I hope that they'll continue to lift those community voices, that community expertise uh, that sometimes goes unrecognized. And then we also offer to anyone that's working with community is that there are ways to bring about more equitable and just practices, not only with funding, but then in co-authorship of different reports and things of that nature 
uh, those are other ways to validate the voices and the work of community. And so that would be my offering. In kind of where, where you started claiming this work and this struggle as, a, as an effort of rematriation and how you also are dedicating and planning to continue that rematriation. And if we want to call it, you know, Black feminist approach to the work is really important. And also you being so insistent on naming it as such was valuable because not only does it teach the importance of that legacy, but it also makes very clear just actually how destructive, violent, and honestly stupid patriarchal systems are. And so mm-hmm. by, by, a sta- by, by naming the resistance and the liberation in this re- as this rematriation, it clearly shows cutting off water, taking people's homes, taking people's children as patriarchal acts and not just like violence happening ab- abstractly. And so rehearing or relearning that or feeling that deeper, I think is, is a valuable uh, knowledge gift that, that I've received from this conversation. And so you certainly are a water warrior and it has really been a humbling uh, honor to, to be able to, to hear from your praxis and, and listen to you sharpen your sword a little bit. Absolutely. Also. Thank you so much, Damon. Thank you, Daniel. You guys have made my day. When I come to Chicago, I'm going to take you to dinner or something. Absolutely. I just think it'd be fun to hang out. Oh, no. We're going to take you to dinner. We're going to take you. Yeah. <laughs> it'd be fun to hang out. A huge and humble thank you to Monica Lewis-Patrick for kicking it with us today here on Climate Changemakers. Shout out to We The People and all of the work that they've been doing. Uh, and also very grateful for all of the organizers, activists, women, political workers that she named and cited as helping build the tradition that she is continuing. And also shout out to the future generations and the young people that are taking up the baton and carrying the work forward. You can find out more about those other movement workers and organizations in the show notes. That'll do it for this episode of Climate Change Makers. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Stay in tune with what Elevate is doing at elevatenp.org. You can subscribe to our other show, Ergo. Just type in A-I-R-G-O wherever you get your pods. And we'll be back with the last episode of season two next month. Much love to the people. Peace.